Support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who's worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Additional support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Blessed are the cheesemakers, according to Monty Python. So this week I'll be making my case for sainthood by tackling cheese curds, the key ingredient in the French-Canadian classic poutine. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. of a good cheese curd, which means a fresh cheese curd, is the squeak. In some places, curds are actually called squeaky cheese. Cheese is at heart a method of preserving milk for days or for years by acidifying it and removing moisture, both of which factor into the squeak. Cheese curds squeak because freshly made, many of the proteins in the cheese form chains. The short chains link up to each other with calcium molecules into longer chains, and these long, strong chains give the curd its rubbery texture. When they rub against the enamel on your teeth, they squeak, just like sneakers on a basketball court. Over time, as the bacterial culture in the cheese converts more of the lactose into lactic acid, and as more watery whey leaks out, increasing the pH even more, the calcium holding the protein chains together dissolves. The short chains, considerably weaker, now slide right past tooth enamel without a single sound of protest. The eater of the curd will immediately know that their supplier is not bringing their best. Interestingly, freezing just after manufacture seems to arrest this process, probably by halting lactic acid production, and so squeaky cheese can be shipped from its twin homelands of Quebec and Wisconsin anywhere it is desired. And it is claimed that a short turn in the microwave will briefly strengthen the protein bonds again, returning the squeak to the curd, although the actual mechanism for how this happens is not certain. What is certain, though, is that if you live in Alaska and you can't wait for the cheese curds to be shipped to you, and the stores, which rarely have them in stock, are as usual out of them, and you want to make a proper poutine, you've got to take matters into your own hands. But if you live in Alaska, you're probably used to that. So on this day, July, July the 6th, 2021, as this is being recorded, I am standing in my kitchen over a sink full of water. The water is currently at 124 degrees and the water contains a pot filled with two gallons of milk that is currently at 92 degrees, 93 degrees it just hit. And I am trying to bring this milk up to the temperature of 96 degrees so that I may add some thermophilic milk culture and some calcium chloride to begin what is going to be a fairly long process here of making cheese curds. These are celebratory cheese curds. I am making these cheese curds because my favorite hockey team from one of my very favorite cities in the entire world, the Montreal Canadiens, are currently, well, they're losing, <laughs> as I speak, three games to one to the Tampa Bay Lightning. After a very improbable run, 
They are in the Stanley Cup Finals. Let's be honest, things are looking pretty grim for them, but they're alive and that's all they need to be. Uh, by the by, the time this show airs, they will either have been eliminated by losing one more game, or since this show is on a Sunday, and so it's possible that at the initial airing of this show, the series will be in doubt. But And I believe, however, in the tradition of delusional sports fans everywhere, I'm gonna do what I can to nudge the karma in their direction just a little bit by making some fresh cheese curd so that I may then make a fantastic rep representation of the classic Quebecois dish, poutine. In fact, I am just beginning to hit my 96 degrees. Yeah, I'm actually at 98.2, I'm at body temperature. So I'm adding my thermophilic cheese culture, which will proceed to ripen this milk. And I'm also adding one half teaspoon of calcium chloride, which all the cheese people say you should use when you are using pasteurized milk, which I am, of course, using pasteurized milk. I'm just gonna stir those in now. That has to ripen, the culture has to grow for about 30 minutes. My recipe says to start my timer and set it for 90 minutes. In a half hour, I have to add the rennet. No kidding, this is kind of a long process. So it's gonna take me most of this first day to actually make the curds. For tomorrow, for game five, then I can actually make my poutine. We're not going to hew entirely to tradition. It isn't gonna be a brown gravy that goes on top of these fresh cheese curds. This is gonna be because, I mean, come on, I'm in Alaska, a smoked salmon poutine. And it's kind of a weird little riff on salmon chowder with the cheese curds standing in for the cream base of the chowder. So we're gonna have some kind of a white sauce, but I haven't decided what it's gonna be yet. And then cheese curds and little chunks of smoked salmon and some sort of a white sauce all smothered on top of French fries. And this is going to be my minuscule contribution to uh, what will hopefully become a miraculous comeback from being down three games to none against by far the best team in the league and a team that is frankly outclassing them. We're, <laughs> we're just going to keep hoping here. So moving on, that's the background as to why I decided to spend an entire check the pantry making poutine. People will argue about authenticity in regard to this particular dish. And as far as I'm concerned, like, yeah, I mean, if you just say, okay, I'm gonna have poutine, then it should be cheese curds, fresh cheese curds, brown gravy, French fries. That's like the basic version. That is the original. There's plenty of origin stories about where exactly in Quebec this particular dish came from. We know that this particular dish arose sometime in the 1950s, somewhere in Quebec, at a casse-croute, which is what they call kind of like a diner or a greasy spoon. It's that kind of place. It's become a beloved dish. And, you know, here in the U.S., we, we think of it as Canadian. But, but really, the Quebecois are pretty insistent that it's theirs. In parts of Canada, you know, particularly if you've driven up the Alcan, you may have had poutine that did not have fresh cheese curds, but had things like mozzarella sometimes or sometimes cheddar. It's, you know, it's fine, but it's also not quite poutine. The cheese curds are kind of important to the whole texture of the dish. You know, they're soft. The really fresh ones squeak. And in fact, the dish is kind of an expression of the fact that for a lot of the early part of the 20th century, especially, like the dairy industry in Quebec was huge. Cheddar cheese was the Canadian cheese for a long, long time. And so both in Ontario and in Quebec, there were tons of dairy farms. And still to this day, if you drive up, up and down the St. Lawrence River, there's small dairy farms everywhere. And Quebec is home to a lot of really fantastic cheese. They were they were making a lot of cheese. And the, the problem when you're making like an aged cheese, like a cheddar, you wind up tying a lot of inventory up in space or a lot of uh, assets up in, in maintaining an inventory that's aging because you have to age your cheese. So it's hard to grow past a certain point without finding a bigger market for your aged cheddar. It's a little bit like whenever you see a, a new distillery open up in the U.S., they want to make whiskey, but they can't make the whiskey until like eight years down the road because it has to sit in barrels. So what they do is they sell white liquor and they call it moonshine, or sometimes they'll call it vodka. And they'll sell that to get them over the hump while they're waiting for their main stuff to age. Well, fresh cheese curds are kind of the same idea. 
they're a product that you can turn over super fast. You can make them every day. You can keep that cash flow coming in while you're waiting for your more expensive, higher value product, your, your cheddar cheese, that's also easier to store and easier to deal with, but it's got to sit there for a while. So while you're waiting on that to mature, you can have a constant turnover of these cheese curds. And a cheese curd in its original Quebecois and famously also in Wisconsin, where the primary thing they do with them is deep fry them. It is actually, all it really is, is the start of the cheddar cheese process. Everything that happens for the next several hours, I'm basically gonna be starting making cheddar cheese, except at the end of it, instead of putting it into a wheel or a block or whatever and sending it, you know, and storing it in a cave for at least 60 to 90 days and probably longer, I'm just gonna be eating it right away, smothered in gravy. The cheese curds, that sort of firmness that they have, the firmness, the squeakiness, the particular texture that they have is not the same as like a finished cheese. So mozzarella is not a great substitute. Cheddar cheese is not a great substitute. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not really what you want, especially if you're just like, I'm having poutine. There's more than one kind. And if you go to any Cascrut in Quebec, a lot of them will have, especially places that really specialize in poutine, they'll, they'll have huge lists, you know, the curried and, and there's bolognese where they give you like an Italian meat sauce on it. Like they'll have dozens and dozens of different kinds sometimes. If, it, if they just call it poutine, then it'll just be cheese curds, gravy, french fries. But then if they call it something else and then add poutine at the end, then it's whatever the other stuff is piled on top of it. So this, do I want to call it smoked salmon chowder poutine? I don't know, maybe I do. We're still working this recipe up, so we'll decide on an official name by the end of it. So this is, this is a perfectly acceptable thing to do, which is to take the basic idea of the poutine and transform it. As long as you credit the Quebecois and as long as you don't use non-cheese curds, <laughs> and try to pretend like, you know, your mozzarella or whatever is gonna be an acceptable substitute, then uh, I, I, feel like, I feel like any Montrealer would be okay with me uh, making this substitution because I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving the Quebecois their props. This is their dish, this is my change. If some guy from Trois-Rivières wants to come and tell me that I can't call it poutine, well, I guess I'll listen to him, but I hope that it will be accepted in the spirit that it is intended because it is intended as an offering to the hockey gods from Alaska to give the Montreal Canadiens the little bit of uh, luck, or real, really, the lot of luck that they're gonna need to be able to survive winning three more games against a massive juggernaut like Tampa Bay. So, I have just added my culture. I made a lot of farmer's cheese and I made a fair amount of ricotta. In fact, I think I made ricotta on the show at one point. But I used to make a lot of farmer's cheese, which is the only rennet cheese that I really have much experience with. Because farmer's cheese is really easy. You just, I typically would make mine with, I'd just use buttermilk and I'd leave it in the milk overnight with rennet. And then in the morning, come back in and it would have coagulated, it would have completely cultured, and then I just cut it and then drain it and it's made. So there's not, there wasn't ever much that you had to do. And all we're doing right now is I've added the culture and we're ripening it. Now this is a thermophilic culture. There's two kinds of cheese culture, mesophilic and there's thermophilic. And mesophilic means middle loving and thermophilic means heat loving. And mesophilic cultures are designed to be used at slightly higher than room temperature. Thermophilic cultures are designed to be used closer to body temperature. And then I've got this calcium chloride, which is a little bottle. It's, a, it's, it's already in solution. And I just added uh, a half a teaspoon to my two cups of milk. And that, like I said at the top, is designed just to help um, already homogenized and pasteurized milk to behave correctly. That's 15 minutes. I've got another 15 minutes to go before I add my, my rennet. So we'll talk about rennet and we'll talk about that step here shortly. Okay, my culture has been working for about a half hour now. I have a quarter cup of water here and one half a teaspoon of single strength animal rennet. Stir that and drop it into my milk. Give it a gentle stir, get it nice and distributed. That is going to sit there and coagulate for somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 30 minutes, probably closer to 30. 
and it's still sitting in the water bath. The water bath is currently 101 degrees. Uh, I've actually added a little bit of cool water because my, my milk was getting a little bit warm and it'll give the rennet a little time to work. It'll give the, the, the culture a little bit of extra time. And this is animal rennet. You can use vegetable rennet if you'd like, if you wanna be sure to make a vegetarian cheese. I actually typically, every time I made it before, I always used vegetarian rennet because a lot of times I was making it at a restaurant situations. Uh, and just and it was just farmer's cheese too. So it didn't matter if it was a super firm texture. The way that I understand it, and I'm not a cheesemaker, I have very little experience in cheesemaking, but most of the cheesemakers that I have talked to and consulted and uh, and heard from say that animal rennet does get a little bit better yield of curd and it typically sets up a little bit more reliably. So for something like a, a farmer's cheese, it really doesn't matter because you're, you're not looking for any kind of a firm textured curd at all. But uh, in this case, it may be better to use animal rennet. But if you're a vegetarian, certainly you can use the vegetarian stuff. So I am just gonna keep monitoring this over the next 25 minutes. I should see the whole thing start to form into a firm curd beginning in about five minutes or so. And then just gradually over time, it'll it'll set up and the, the casein proteins will start to knit together and we'll start to get the curd happening. Once the curd has set up and once I have a nice unified block of coagulated cheese, then I'll be back to cut the curd, which is the next step in this process. Just about a half hour later and pretty coagulated here, tapping the cheese with a spatula. And we it is definitely a curd. And what I'm supposed to do to check it is to lift a little of my curd out and see if it fills with a clear way. It seems to be a little cloudy. So it says if it seems to be a little cloudy to let it sit for another three minutes or so. Oh yeah, there we go. Yep, I can see it now. It's now settling in pretty clear pockets. So now I gotta cut the curd, which is cutting it at roughly three quarters of an inch intervals, all the way down to the bottom in straight lines. So let's cross one way, now let's cross the other. The initial pattern is very, it's pretty faint, but now even just 30 seconds later, you can you can kind of see the curd just begin to shrink and recede some of the whey start to leak out the next part of this process will be slowly as we start to cook it will be slowly driving the whey out so I'm, i gotta wait for just a few minutes here to let this initial part of it start to work i'll give it a, a slow stir and then after that we'll start the process of cooking lift that out of my water bath. The next part is kind of the tricky part. I need to be heating the milk from its current temperature, which is 97.3 degrees. And over the next half hour, I need to raise it 20 degrees to 116. This is a half hour to 40 minutes. So I want it I want it to be between a minute and a half to two minutes per degree. The reason we're doing it really slowly like that is because what we're doing is coagulating the proteins, but we need it to happen in a very, very controlled manner. You know, if we just boil the milk or something or, or crank it too hot, the proteins will coagulate too quickly and they'll trap too much of the whey. We're, we're, we're looking to very, very slowly squeeze the milk proteins together and let them exude the whey instead of trapping the whey inside it by the outside becoming sort of case hardened. This is going to be a very controlled drying process, a very controlled coagulation process. I'm going to need to kind of pay attention to it. So I'm going to have a water bath ready to go. That's going to be about 124 degrees. So if I feel like I'm getting maybe a little too fast on the stove top, I'm going to be doing this on my simmer burner at the very lowest setting I can do it, constantly stirring and constantly monitoring the temperature to make sure that I'm not heating this too fast. If I do start to get a little fast on the burner, I'm gonna drop it into the water, which should uh, help it to, to slow down and to moderate the temperature rise. I'm gonna be doing that 
for the next half hour. And I will see you on the flip side. In a bizarre and completely pointless <laughs> exercise in invoking non-existent magic to affect what happens to a bunch of dudes on the other side of the continent from me. Most of whom are from a different country. I've just spent the last half hour, slightly more, stirring a pot of coagulated milk until it hit the temperature of 116 degrees. And now I've just set that into a pot, into my water bath of roughly 116 degree water. And I'm going to let this sit here for about half an hour to 45 minutes in order to cook this curd and maintain it at this warmer level. Uh, now we've definitely got full-on curds. Um, they're really small because I've been stirring them and they're mostly sinking to the bottom of my pot here. And the, up on top is the, is the yellowy sort of liquid, the whey. And I am just going to be monitoring this temperature and periodically transferring this to the stove just to give it a little bit of a boost. But yeah, now we wait because this is kind of the critical part of the whole deal. About 40 minutes later and we're 115 degrees through some judicious bouncing between water bath and the stove top. I have managed to keep the temperature right where it needs to be and now I'm checking the curd. What I'm looking for according to my recipe is for the curd to be distinctly firm, well set, not soft, not weak. And then when I take a handful and lightly squeeze them together, they should pretty easily stick together pretty well. And they're doing that. And we can begin the next part of the process. I have here a china cap, colander. I'm gonna use this to start draining my curd. And I've also got my fine mesh filter bag. That is what I'm going to be using to actually contain the curd. And I'm just going to grab a ladle here. I'm going to start ladling my curd out. I'm going to retain the whey. Maybe I'll try to make ricotta with it or something. And at this point, I mean, this basically looks like cottage cheese. And that's kind of what it is. Or, you know, curds and whey, as little Miss Muffet would put it. So that is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven quarts of whey to pretty sizable chunk of curds. So considering we started with two gallons or eight quarts, you can see just how much whey is going to be left over from the making of this cheese. So now I need to let this drain just a little bit longer before I take the next step. So I'm just gonna give it a few minutes here, draining in this bag. And then the next thing we're gonna be doing is pressing it, weighting it, and cheddaring it. That is the final step. Once we're done with that, then we'll just salt it and we'll be ready. So I'm just kinda gently massaging it a little bit to drain out some more of this whey. And I've got a smaller colander. This is a bowl-shaped colander with a nice uh, nice shape to it. A lot of straining, a lot of, a lot of utensils going on here. That's just how it kind of goes. I'm gonna set my bag in my colander, in my bowl. I am now going to weight it. Oh, look at that, that is perfect. Cut my, my tea kettle sits exactly on top of it and it's filled with warm water, which is good because we want to keep this cooling very, very slowly because what's happening now is all of the lactose in my cheese, all of my milk sugars is now going to finish its conversion into lactic acid and the cheese is going to start to develop the characteristic tang that I want to have. And so that is what's taking place over the next probably a two and a half hour process where every half hour I'm going to come in and I'm going to do what's called cheddaring it. I'm going to cut it in half, restack the pieces, and then let it drain again. And then over the next couple of hours, 
the proteins will knit together in such a way that the texture will change and the acidity will increase. And as the acidity increases, that will ease back the culture. The bacteria won't work as much. They'll start to be uh, inhibited. And then at the end, when I add the salt, that'll be the final thing that stops the action of the bacteria so that now the cheese is sort of fully preserved. And uh, well, not quite, but we're, we're attempting to increase the acidity of the cheese is what we're doing right now, which as we all know, acidity is one of the most important factors in preservation and preservation of milk is after all the main actual purpose of cheese. So I'm going to let this sit now for another, for a half hour, and then I'm going to come back and start the cheddaring process. About a half hour later, let's see what we got here for our first cheddaring process. So I've lost, I don't know, maybe a three quarters of a cup away. And I'm gonna dump that. I went ahead and I'm making a ricotta out of the way. So this is a really traditional ricotta of the, the kind that I've never actually made before. And really all, I, all I'm doing is bringing a pot of water, or not of water, <laughs> bringing my pot of whey to 185 degrees and holding it there until the curds firm or form. So I gotta cut this curd and oh wow, it's completely formed a nice and solid mass. And now I am to remove this mass. Oh yeah, it's firm, for real. Wow, it works y'all. Isn't it nice when something you've never done and you theoretically know how to do works? It's still got a little bit of a crumbly texture for sure, but it's it's solid. It is like, it is springy. It's, you know, a little bouncy, a little rubbery almost. But what I'm supposed to do for this cheddaring process is to cut it and restack it so that different faces face each other. And I'm gonna dump it back into my bag here, plop it down, and here we go again. And now we're gonna let that drain for another 30 minutes and then I'm going to come back and do the same thing. We're going to keep this cheddaring process rolling. Take a look here at cheddaring take two. See where we're at. Getting pretty close on my ricotta too. I added some salt. We're almost to 185 which is where it's got to sit for a little while. But let's see what we got here. Oh yeah, we're totally knitting back together. Much firmer. So I'm going to go ahead and cut it in a different way this time. I'm going to cut it down the middle. And when I look at it, oh yeah, yeah, they're completely knit together there in the middle. Put them back in, press them down some more, and uh, we'll let that go for another half hour. Okay, we are an hour and a half into this process. A little more whey. Come out, add that back into my ricotta, which is now generating not a huge amount of curds, but curds for sure. We'll definitely get some out of this. And now let's take a look at our cheese, which yes, it is definitely knitting together. The cheddaring process is happening. And uh, I guess I gotta do it one more time at least, although I'm a little leery. Although I guess it doesn't really matter. Let's see, let's take a look at and see what this looks like on the inside. So it's pretty crumbly still. What it's supposed to look like ideally at the end is uh, it's supposed to have the texture of cooked chicken breast is what they're looking for and we're still a little bit crumbly it's a little more like at this point it's kind of like a firmer rubberier uh feta nice flavor and definitely use a little more acidifying here cut it one more time Give it one more restack here i'm gonna have this way I feel like this way is going to come into play in the sauce from my poutine. So I'm pretty excited about that. I got an idea. <laughs> Who knows if it'll work. We got one more, one or possibly two more intervals here. Although I'm not certain. I don't think I should be cheddaring any further. I don't think you're supposed to do it much past an hour and a half because then it doesn't have sufficient water anymore inside of it to help the proteins knit together. So that's going to be my last cheddaring. I'll still flip it the next time, but I'm not going to actually cut it anymore. And uh, we'll come back in a, another half hour and see what we got. Half hour later, 
full two hours after the beginning of our cheddaring process. Considerably less whey draining out than before, which is unsurprising. Stack is now knitted together one more time. I'm supposed to be looking for, they always describe it as the texture of a cooked chicken breast, which actually is pretty close to what we're at here now. It's much less the texture of feta like it was before. It'll definitely kind of flake off. It's for sure tangier. I don't know if you can hear it, but I've definitely got some squeak happening. I'm uh, kind of inclined to say this is uh, that this is pretty good. I think we might be there. Full two hours in. I'm happy with that. Next thing we got to do is salt it. Well, we got to break it up into smaller curds, and these will be my my final cheese curds, and then we'll salt it, and that will finish this process. Break it up into little chunks, dropping them into a bowl here. Not too small, not too large. Something that'll hold up well under a big pile of whatever sauce we come up with here. And I could cut these too into even pieces, but I mean, come on, it's homemade. I'm making homemade cheese curds. I want them to be all interesting textures and chunky and weird. And some of them will be really small and melt right into my sauce. And some of them will be big and be sort of soft on the outside, but still a little bit rubbery and squeaky on the inside. So we're going to, it's going to be a whole cornucopia of experience, of textural and flavor experiences in this poutine. Here's a, here's a fun little trivia piece. When I was, first time I went to Montreal, I was learning, I was, well, learning slash brushing up on my very old French from when I was a kid in Louisiana. We had to take it in school. It was pretty bad and it's still pretty bad. I can read it, but I'm pretty bad at everything else. Um, I can, I can get by verbally. But anyway, so one of the things that I was doing before we went is I was reading uh, one of the Montreal papers, La Presse. <laughs> and they happen to have an article about the prime minister of Russia. Is he prime minister or is he president? I can't remember off the top of my head if he's, which one he is. Doesn't matter, but you know him, uh, of course. <laughs> and it, it still cracks me up because in Quebec newspapers, he's, it's spelled Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Whereas we would say Putin, P-U-T-I-N, is the is the English is the Anglicization of the uh, <laughs> of his name. In Quebec, they they spell it P-O-U-T-I-N-E. And I was I was really like I the, the first time I saw it, I was like, what is going on here? I thought it was a mistake. Well, first I thought it was maybe a mistake, and then I thought maybe that like the copy editor was just like having some fun that day. And then I looked into it and it turns out that <laughs> it turns out that P-U-T-I-N, if you pronounce it the way it's spelled in French, you get putain, which is a uh, slang, derogatory slang for a lady of the night. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't exactly know how they made the decision to avoid calling him uh <laughs> Vladimir Streetwalker and decided instead to call him Vladimir um, Pile of French Fries <laughs> with cheese curds and gravy. But frankly, I gotta say, I, I, it works for me. So I'm gonna add some salt here. 2% salt by weight of the curds, which will uh, brine, it'll drain the brine out as it, as it, uh, as you salt it, it'll suck some of the, some of the more of the whey out and that will reduce your total salt in the actual curds themselves to one and a half percent by weight. And what they say is with two gallons of milk, approximately four teaspoons of salt. So I'm going to start with that. And you're supposed to do it in three different parts. So the salting process now is going to take a few minutes. But at the end of it, these guys will be done. And we will be... We will have a big pile of fresh cheese curds. 
that will squeak and that we can then use to make our smoked salmon poutine. I'm very excited. All right, well, we got the first ingredient of our poutine squared away, the cheese curds themselves. So the next thing to start working on is the french fries. We're gonna go to the trouble of making all this stuff. We're gonna make some proper french fries using, of course, the double fry method. Um, and in this case, I'm actually prepping the fries. I'm gonna eat them later. We're gonna assemble this whole deal later because, you know, I'm doing this for the game and the game is tonight but I want to be ready for it so I don't have to spend a bunch of time messing around with it. So I'm going to do my first fry right now, and I'm going to cool down the fries, and I'm going to put them in the freezer, which is uh, a, a good way to get a really nice texture because the freezer will explode some of the, uh, some of the cells and give it kind of a almost that, that nice, fluffy McDonald's texture. Um, there's, a reason that, there's a reason that actually frozen fries are, are pretty awesome, and a lot of times you'll get better fries if you buy really top quality frozen fries. But we are, we are making them by hand today. And I have a couple of russet potatoes, sizable russet potatoes. And I'm just going to, I'm gonna hand cut them. I'm not gonna run them on the mandolin because I want them to be a little thicker. I don't want them to be a shoestring. And I want them to be even a little thicker than like a McDonald's fry for Poutine, they, you really want your fries to be a little bit substantial. You don't want them to be steak fries. You don't want them to be huge, but they need to, they need to have a little bit of heft to them. You know, you're piling a bunch of stuff on top of them, and you don't want the fries themselves to be too small where they just get soggy real quick. So I'm going for about a half inch uh, cross section on these fries. So you just, you don't want them to be so big that they have that kind of big fry texture where it's mostly middle and you don't get much of a crispiness on the outside, but you don't want them to be so small that they just give way under the weight and under the moisture of all the, uh, the gravy and the cheese curds that you're gonna put on them. I am going to rinse them to rinse the excess starch off. And this really helps to get crispy on the outside because the, the starch that's on the outside of the potatoes contains a lot of uh, moisture. It's kind of gummy. And if you, if you just fry them without rinsing them, you won't get a super, super crispy texture because there, there's a, a sort of layer of gummy starch on the outside. So if you rinse them off until they run clear, and this will give us a better texture for our french fries. And now I'm gonna salt the water fairly heavily while I'm waiting on my oil to heat up here. So the first fry we want to take place at 300 degrees or less. And the, the goal of the first fry is just to cook the potato through. We wanna reduce the water content on the outside so that when we do the final fry, we get a super crispy potato. So there we're at 297, which is pretty good. Let's go ahead. I'm gonna add them all because in this case, since we're not looking to brown them yet, it's okay if the batch is a little bigger for, than, the, than the oil can really maintain a temperature at and just hold them there until they're, they're nice and cooked all the way through. Let's see what our temperature dropped to. So yeah, we've, we dropped all the way to 213. So these are gonna take probably seven to 10 minutes. Just stir them every now and then. You know, as we cook, we're, we're basically cooking most of the water out of the, uh, out of the outer layers of the fry, which means that then the fries will be very, very dry when we go to drop them in the super hot oil in the 350 degree oil to give them their final brown. The inside of the potatoes will, they'll, they'll generate a lot of steam and that steam will give them that nice sort of fluffy texture which is so desirable on the inside of a french fry. And there are, I have seen french fry recipes where after the fry comes out, they'll coat them in potato starch and that'll get even crispier and more kind of insane, which is fine, but that's not what we're gonna do today. Today, we're just gonna keep it simple. All we're looking for here is the textural contrast between the crunchy outside, the crispy outside and the soft interior. Now they're starting to get kind of soft, so I don't wanna move them around too much because I don't want them breaking off. The potatoes are now, they've acquired kind of a definite cooked appearance. We're starting to see just a few little 
bits of brown on some of the thinner parts, some of the edges. They're soft, but they've still got some firmness. Should be getting pretty close to maybe 250 right now. Or just about 240. They smell like cooked potatoes now. I think these guys are definitely cooked. Putting these guys all on a rack. I'm gonna let them cool just at room temperature for a little bit. And then once they've kind of lost a lot of their initial heat, I am going to slip this thing into my freezer and let all these guys freeze because it'll, it'll disrupt the starch networks on the inside so that they just, they're super floofy and they're broken up and we get that nice fluffy texture that'll really do a good job of absorbing the gravy, which the gravy is what we've got to make next. Well, we got the fries mostly finished. All the hard work's done. We got the cheese curds made. So for our final piece of the poutine puzzle, we're gonna be making a sauce. We are not gonna make just a brown gravy. Well, I don't, I don't mean to say just a brown gravy. A well-done brown gravy is like one of the great sauces of all of Western cuisine. But we're gonna do things a little different today because I'm that kind of a dork. Our entire poutine is really a, it's a reimagining, a sort of breakdown and reconstruction of a smoked salmon chowder, which all of us in Alaska anyway, know and love, or maybe you don't love it, but even if you don't love it, that's what we're doing here today. So we've got the potatoes, which are of course a very important part of a chowder in the form of the fry. Uh, we've got the smoked salmon, which will be added at the same time as the cheese curds, but the cheese curds are kind of a interesting twist. So typically a salmon chowder, a chowder as we all know, at least a a proper chowder and not that weird tomato thing that they make in Manhattan. A, a proper clam chowder is made, you know, basically out of milk. Well, there's there's kind of two ways of making them. The old school way pretty much always started with a roux. Uh, the more modern way a lot of places will do is just to use straight cream and reduce that down a little bit so it's thick, but it's very, very rich. Um, the old version made with a roux and, uh, and milk can be a little bit blander but it's also not so heavy, like you can eat more of it, especially if you're eating it with like bread or something, it's a lot easier to kind of digest that style, as long as it's not like a really stodgy, thick, nasty consistency. So that's the style of chowder that we're kind of attempting to emulate here. So I don't wanna use cream, and I actually don't really wanna use milk because I already have a lot of milk fat and a lot of milk protein and a lot of milky flavor and feel in the form of my cheese curds. Okay, great, but I need some sort of liquid in the sauce. And before yesterday, before I was sitting down actually making the cheese curds, I was like, well, I was like, I could use bottled clam juice, or I could go through the trouble of making a fish stock, or I could just use water, or I could use wine, or I could use beer. And I was kicking around all these ideas. And then yesterday, as I'm pouring off this enormous quantity of slightly acidic, Slightly tangy, slightly dairy, very creamy, interesting textured whey. I said, hey, why not make a whey bechamel? So that's what we're gonna do. And I'm taking little tastes of it and it tastes, it's like clarified milk. It has like a milky, really delicious flavor, but it's acidified, so there's a tang to it. And the sweetness is very upfront, which is really, really interesting. It's not that often that you really get like the, the sweetness of milk hitting you right off the bat. But here in this way, it really is, because it was drained off, you know, before all of the lactic acid bacteria had a chance to do their work, and then it was boiled not long after, even though I added a little bit of acetic acid to it, a little vinegar, uh, during the ricotta making process, it still has like this very forward, very appealing sweetness to it, which honestly I think is gonna make a fantastic sauce. And I'm really excited about this. You know, it's not often that I actually go, man, that's a cool idea and feel like it actually is, but that definitely happened to me yesterday. So, so we're gonna see what happens here. I got a quarter cup of butter, a half a stick of butter here. I just added a quarter cup of flour. I'm gonna add just a pinch more because this is primarily a thickening roux. It's not just a flavoring roux. So I'm actually, I actually want this roux to do some work. And I'm not gonna cook it for very long. I'm just gonna cook this to where it's just blonde. 
So basically just two or three minutes for the raw taste of the flour to cook out. I've got some onions chopped and I've got some celery chopped and I've got some garlic chopped, which is gonna serve as the predominant aromatic flavor base for my whey bechamel chowder sauce. Could go ahead and add my onions. That's just one onion chopped pretty fine. So give me a nice onion base. More salt. So I just dropped the celery in. Just sweating these so they're translucent. And I'm gonna drop, I'm gonna drop a few drops of Tabasco in there because I'm from Louisiana and I can't help it. A little bit of a Worcestershire sauce because I'm from Louisiana and I can't help it. I put stuff in everything, including my chowder, but it's made out of fish, so it basically makes sense. And now I've got all my stuff together in a nice rooey ball. And so now I'm just gonna start adding my whey. And I'm just gonna add it a little bit at a time until I end up with a sauce that's a little bit thinner than I want. And then I'm gonna cook it for a while. And as it cooks, some of the water will cook out. The starch will completely hydrate inside the roux. And we will sooner or later get to the perfect consistency for this sauce. All right, let's let that cook for just a couple of minutes. Because a lot of the thickening happens pretty much right off the bat, once it starts to come up to a simmer, and then only a small amount happens later. So you can pretty much get to, you can pretty much get to where you want to be um, right off the bat. So I just added a pinch of cayenne because I love cayenne, especially in seafood things, and especially where there's some milk involved that would otherwise blunt flavors. Although, again, this isn't, I really don't think that this sauce is gonna blunt flavor at all. I think this sauce is really gonna enliven the flavor because like we've taken the veil of the proteins and the milk fat and we've removed them and we put those into the cheese, into the cheese curds, where we'll get the occasional, you know, intense blast of that. And the rest of the liquid is just this kind of sweet, lightly acidic, quite beautiful, quite light and very fresh tasting um, way. So it shouldn't mask any flavors at all. That's like, that's the big thing with, with a bechamel in particular is that if you aren't careful, it's really easy for them, for it to become kind of stodgy and, and bland. And I don't think that that is gonna be an issue here. <laughs> in fact, I'm gonna take a quick little taste here. It's gonna be a little, a little raw tasting cause it's kind of early, but it'll give us an idea of what we're gonna move into. Oh. Ooh, that's lovely, actually. That's really lovely. It, it tastes a little bit like the greatest sausage gravy, you know, for biscuits and gravy that you've ever had. It has kind of a similar flavor because there's a little thyme and a little, a little bit of heat from the cayenne and the savoriness from the Worcestershire and the, and the funk of the, the Tabasco. So a lot of those flavors are, are flavors that I would use in, in a white gravy, in a milk gravy for like, you know, biscuits and gravy. But there's a clarity to it that I've never had there where you can almost like see what's happening inside of it, like a pane of glass and you're looking through it. And it's actually, I'm kind of fascinated by this because it doesn't at all have that sort of dulling effect that a bechamel or a milk gravy can have. Like it's not heavy tasting, it's very, it's light. It looks, and it's kind of deceiving because you taste it and you're like, oh, it's milk gravy. But the way that it actually sits on your palate is is fascinating. And uh, I'm pretty, I'm suddenly, even more excited than I was when I started because I've never even considered something like this ever. And this is a really interesting technique for me. I'm gonna let this uh, bechamel cook for probably 20, 20 minutes or so to make sure that, that, it's, that the starch is fully hydrated, that the flavors are blended. I'm gonna let it reduce just slightly so it'll have a nice smooth, silky texture. It takes a little while um, when you're making a roux-based gravy or sauce to to get the sort of ultimate silkiness, it just takes some time for the for the flour to absorb all the all the liquid. I'm gonna let this cook for a little while, and then I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna give my my French fries the second time, and then it's gonna be time to assemble this uh, very interesting little beast of a uh, poutine. Here for the final assembly, heating my oil. This time, 350 degrees, because it's time to fry my fries. 
Doing a quick chiffonade of sorrel. I was thinking about what I might want to have garnishing this, and sorrel and salmon are kind of a classic anyway, so I went ahead and grabbed that, and I just pulled out a chunk of smoked salmon. Um, like most of us <laughs> in this state, I have random packages of smoked salmon kicking around my freezer that I'm not even sure where this one came from or how old it is or anything. But it's still, it's still good, so, you know, nothing wrong with it. Still quite tasty. It's been in the freezer for however long it's been in the freezer. And now we just gotta wait for this oil to heat up. We'll be ready to go. Gotta hurry up, because we're getting pretty close to puck drop here. Game five, Habs are down three to one. Every game is a must win, so hopefully the spirit of this lovingly handcrafted poutine makes it all the way to Tampa Bay, where they're playing right now. And uh, somehow, through the ether, gives them that final little boost that they need to prevail tonight. But who knows? We'll know by next Sunday what happened. Grab myself a little handful of the fries. I'm just making one batch. The rest of my fries will stay in the freezer until I'm ready to use them. Which is another handy thing about the double fry method is that you can, if you decide you're gonna make some fries, you can just prep a huge amount of fries with the first fry and then store them in a bag in the freezer. And whenever you want some, you just pull them out, fry yourself up a little batch. It's one of the many reasons they're so popular in restaurants. There are a lot of prep work, but at service, things happen real fast. And my, my gravy now, as I, I added a little bit more, after I let it cook for about 20 minutes, I added a little bit more whey just to get it to the consistency I was looking for. It's a little, it's honestly, it's a bit hard to describe because it's very, like, if you tasted it, you'd be like, it, it, it looks and it tastes very similar to a bechamel, but it has this lightness. It's, it's hard to, it, it is a little challenging to, to try to put into words. You can taste, you can taste the individual flavors, like the, you can taste the onion, you can taste the celery. They're more than just background notes now. Now they're, they're sort of right out there. It's almost like you're looking at a mosaic up close as opposed to further back. And so you can actually see the way that it's put together. What are we at here, 240? And it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. It's not, it's not something I've ever quite experienced with a white sauce before. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that looks familiar, but it's somehow not. I love it when, I love it when you get that. I'm definitely gonna experiment a little more with using whey in these kinds of circumstances. It, it, it is something that, if you're gonna make cheese, like it seems stupid to make, to burn two gallons of milk and just get you know, I mean, it's a pretty significant amount of cheese curds here, but still, you know, you gotta throw all this other stuff away. Well, you don't have to throw it away. You can find a use for it. And people will use whey in like bread and stuff like that, but I'm really, I really like finding ways to, to sort of showcase things that are byproducts. Like whey is, <laughs> you know, not something that's ever a culinary star. And here it's not even a star, it's just, it's almost like a, like a shaded version of milk, like a pastel milk. It's not the full color, it's just like a hint of the color. The other ingredients are stepping up much more and it's receding into the background, which is really not something that milk, is, milk does. For all of its neutral and blandness, it's, it's kind of an overpowering flavor. It really does dull uh, other flavors, and, which is why the bechamel sauce is, has kind of fallen out of favor in a lot of situations because it does have that kind of dulling effect. But in this case, it, it's almost like a bit of an amplifying effect or a clarifying effect. 295. 55 degrees to poutine. There we go. Ready. Bombs away. And remember on the second fry, you know, you can, you can crowd the pan a little on the first fry, but on the second fry, you really need to just manage your batches depending on how much oil you have and not overcrowd the pot because you want your temperature to stay up. You know, you don't want to lose a bunch of temp here. And I just dropped a pretty small batch and I'm at, yeah, I'm still at 330, 335, so that's perfect. In fact, I can even turn my, I can even turn my burner down a little because I don't need a crazy amount of heat pumping in here to maintain my temp. Always remember when frying, you are always constrained by two things. You're constrained by the amount of oil that you have and the power of your burner. Because if your burner can't overcome the heat loss, then you're gonna lose temp and your food's gonna get soggy and gross. And if you don't have enough oil so that the oil can't absorb the heat loss, 
then you're going to have problems too. All right, we're getting nice browning here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're close now. So close to poutine. Last little trick here. In a bowl with some paper towel to absorb. We're good. Lovely brown on my french fries. Lovely crispiness. Drop them in my bowl with a paper towel on it. Give it a little salt. Toss them around in the little salt. Here we go. So we gotta do this in the correct order here. So we're gonna put my cheese curds on top of the warm fries so that they'll start to melt. A few different sizes, chunkiness. And then pile my smoked salmon on top of that. Beautiful. And now the gravy, the hot gravy, whose whole mission in life is to taste delicious and start melting those cheese curds. And you know you need a lot of gravy if you want to have a proper poutine. Scratch of black pepper and a little bit of chiffonaded sorrel. And we have smoked salmon chowder poutine in honor of this unexpected and still ongoing Montreal Canadiens Stanley Cup run. We'll see what happens. The puck is about to drop. I gotta go watch this game. And I'm gonna enjoy this very delicious poutine. So until next time, Ale Montreal, go Habs go. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotawar Ebane. This is the fourth episode of the first summer 2021 season of Check the Pantry. The poutine from this episode did not achieve its goal, as the Montreal Canadiens lost Game 5 and the Stanley Cup Finals. However, it was delicious. Support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the Southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Additional support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who has worked at Michelin Star restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.